Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Leaders of the world's two largest economies talked for two hours today. What did they say and what opportunities and dangers might come of the meeting as the war continues in Ukraine? Democrats are drumming up support for a new bill to tax oil producers more. They say they want to give that money to consumers. What would this look like in practice and how much support does it have on Capitol Hill? Renewed calls for an investigation into the president and his son, Hunter Biden, are surfacing. That's after a New York Times report confirms the existence of Hunter's infamous laptop and claimed to authenticate the emails contained in it. President Biden's Supreme Court pick has come under scrutiny recently, just days before the Senate hearings begin. One senator says the nominee's judicial record shows a pattern of leniency towards sex offenders. The CDC quietly removes tens of thousands of deaths linked to COVID-19, including nearly a quarter of the deaths in children. Many health professionals are taking this as a good sign, but they're also raising concerns that this data has been used to steer policy and advocate for vaccination. More than three weeks after launching its invasion of Ukraine, the Russian military has yet to capture a single big city in the neighboring country. CENTCOM Commander General McKenzie explained some of the fundamental setbacks with the Russian military. You can train an army, you can equip an army. What you can't give an army is, is the fighting spirit of the individual soldier. General McKenzie is the commander of Central Command, which covers the Middle East. He spoke Friday at a Pentagon news briefing. He has an understanding of Russia's military as they've worked alongside U.S. troops in Syria for several years, which is under the general's area of operations. While he did not comment on specific tactics between Ukraine and Russia, he did make a point. Clearly, the Ukrainians have tremendous fighting spirit at the individual soldier level, at the small unit level. They're defending their homes, they're defending their country. Uh, they feel that, that right is on their sides. We can all make our judgments about how motivated the Russian soldiers appear, and they don't appear, from where I sit at least, to be particularly motivated or particularly, uh, or particularly engaged in the campaign that they're undertaking. He also added that the pride of the U.S. military is its ability to have junior leaders execute independently. My observation is that writ, writ large, the one thing the Russians don't have, which is sort of the, the key of the U.S. joint force, is the middle management level, the NCO and staff non-commissioned officer level that really form the backbone of our military. They're the people that actually ensure things get done. That people, are, uh, that people are fed properly, that people have a place, a warm place to sleep at night, all of those things. I just don't believe they're as good at that as we are. He also said the media plays an important factor when deciding a country's fate. I think reaching out and being available to the press and talking to the press is a very important responsibility for all senior leaders. we got to do it. And there have been days, I'll tell you, I would rather have my leg taken off below the knee then come in there and talk to you guys. And, uh, but, I, but it was an important thing to do. And in the long run, it's better for the country. It's better for everyone if we're accessible to you and we share what information we've got. He added the decline of a free press in Russia has contributed to its drift into authoritarianism and also the invasion of Ukraine. Jason Perry, NTD News. A factory on the outskirts of Lviv, Ukraine, was attacked this morning by rocket fire. NTD's reporter Dan Skorback was in Lviv when it happened, and he heard from the governor. Lviv woke up to sirens and a large stack of smoke that rises over the west. In the western side of the city, there's an airport. It's an attack on the city of Lviv. That is a humanitarian hub. Here we have at least 200,000 refugees. These people already fled from the war once. The rockets hit an inactive factory that repaired planes at around 6 o'clock in the morning. Ukrainian authorities reported one injury and no casualties. The governor stressed that there are no active military operations within the territory of Lviv. This is just another example that they are not directly fighting with our military, or if they are fighting, they are fighting with our civilians, children, women, and the refugees. Anya Premenko has witnessed this herself. Her mother, brother, the brother's wife, and their three children was struck in the city of Sume under heavy gunfire. 
Their suitcases were already packed for five days because there was already a lot of unrest in the city, but a lot of people couldn't leave because there were no humanitarian corridors provided. Anyone who tried to leave was shot at. There were cars with children, but no one cared if there were children inside. That's why many just waited for an official corridor that was promised on March 8th. But the night before Anya's family planned to evacuate, a Russian missile struck their two-story home, killing everyone inside, including their three children who were five, 10 and 15 years of age. It's true what they say, war has no rules. There are no rules in this war. They shoot children. I don't even know how to comment on this. There is no forgiveness here. Russian state-run media claims that it is the so-called Ukrainian nationalistic forces that are firing on civilians. Dan Skorbak, NTD News, Ukraine. And this weekend on the NTD's The Nation Speaks, an episode on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. The war began on February 24th, just over three weeks ago. And while negotiations are underway, there's not yet an end in sight. So some countries are preparing for the worst, like Poland. The country itself understands all too well the reality of Russian aggression. They've fought 19 wars already. We hear from a Polish geostrategic analyst to understand what this war means and where it could go. It's been 23 days since Russia invaded Ukraine and the war began. Worldwide, people are holding their breath, wondering if it will end through negotiations or global conflict. And Poland's getting ready for the war. Jacek Bartoszek has the war on his doorstep. He's the founder and CEO of Strategy in Future, a think tank based in Warsaw, the capital of Poland. He published a book in January titled World War III is Coming. Will America abandon Poland to Russia? On top of taking in the largest number of Ukrainian refugees, Bartoszek says Poland is preparing for an all-too-familiar battle. Our political leader announced the major, the largest military overhaul and modernization program in the history of the Republic. We will be spending a lot more will be loaning money from the world market even to fill the military that can t take up a fight. And while opinions vary, Bartoszek says it is in America's utmost interest to aid Ukraine's defense and guarantee the security of NATO's eastern flank. The American audience should understand that uh, it's not the war against Ukraine. Actually, Russia decided to undermine the world order that was underpinned by the American guarantees and the American credibility in Eurasia. And if this unfolds, if this unravels, so uh, the real target is the United States in terms of credibility and its posture and its power, its stance, its standing in the, in the world. Uh, and the, the, the Russians simply want to have a completely new architecture and new place in the world for them. Bartoszek says the citation is complex and that America is in a very difficult position since Ukraine is not part of NATO. It's a very thin line, very difficult, like a ballet. It's a very difficult foreign policy undertaking. And I'm every day watching what the Americans are doing. And everybody's watching. Poles are watching. The Russians are watching. Watch out. The Chinese are watching. What your, your you know attitude looks like, whether this attitude will play out the same in terms of Taiwan and its, you know, challenge of, you know, against Taiwanese, the Western Pacific and elsewhere. Everybody's looking to see if the United States is still the predominant power in the world affairs. But when it comes to world positions, one thing is certain. Bartoszek says regardless of how the war ends, Russia cannot be allowed to keep its status as a great power. And also on The Nation Speaks, how the most vulnerable are caught up in the fighting. Orphans who don't have a family and often no safety net are hit especially hard. NTD spoke with an advocate who started bringing Ukrainian orphans to the U.S. long before the war began. Justin Hazlett is the founder and managing director of Legacy Refuge. He's been working together with orphanages in Ukraine for the past five years, trying to bring kids without families to America. Over the last few weeks, there's been thousands of orphans who've been stuck in Ukraine. Before the war, 
Justin organized hostings, where Ukrainian refugees come to live with American families for a few months so they can get to know each other. After that, they have to go back to Ukraine and finish the process, and many are now stuck. Hundreds, if not thousands of kids from Ukraine who go to America every year for hosting. And out of those, these families, you know, over 200 now, have stepped up and said, I want to adopt this child. They've already, a lot of them have passed the United States approval, UCIS approval to say you're a safe family, you've passed the background checks, the home study, you're somewhere in that process. So we have approved families who already know the kids, love the kids, and have been approved by the U.S. government saying they're safe, and yet there's no way to get them here presently. He says the Ukrainian government is not moving the cases forward or even responding to him. So where are Ukrainian orphans right now? Some are in Poland. We've heard there's, you know, this massive nine to 10,000 orphans in one facility. There's some that are spread out all over Germany, Poland, Hungary, Romania, all in various conditions. You know, one group just got out and we heard they had barely any food or clothes. He added that most of these kids are between 6 and 15 years old, have already had traumatic experiences in their lives, and should now hopefully end up in a better situation. To catch the full interviews, tune in to The Nation Speaks with Cindy Drucker at 11 a.m. Saturday. And today, President Biden and China's Xi Jinping held a lengthy talk on Ukraine. It comes at a potential turning point for U.S.-China relations and amid concerns that Beijing could aid Moscow militarily. NTD's Iris Tao has the details. During an almost two-hour video call, President Biden told China's Xi Jinping that there will be consequences if China helps Russia. Uh, he also uh, conveyed uh, and, and described the implications and consequences if China provides material support to Russia. But again, I'm not going to provide any additional assessment from here. But the White House did not say what those implications would be or whether she called Russia's actions an invasion. Because China has to make a decision for themselves about where they want to stand uh, and how they want the history books to uh, look at them and view their actions. China's readout of the call, meanwhile, indicates little change in Beijing's stance. She reportedly told Biden that, quote, the Ukraine crisis is not something we want to see. But Xi's version did not mention what China would do to achieve peace, nor did it use the word war or invasion. Instead of saying, yes, I condemn this uh, war of aggression by Russia, Xi Jinping is doubling down um, by taking an adversarial stance towards uh, the United States, Ukraine, um, and basically the freedom-loving countries of the world. Beijing's lack of clarity comes amid reports that Russia has asked China for military help. The U.S. explicitly warned China against it a day before Friday's call. But a security expert says that trying to convince China of this risks diminishing the U.S. in the eyes of the Chinese Communist Party. It was not uh, sensible or prudent, uh, let alone likely to be terribly productive, to have the United States essentially appealing to the Chinese to uh, avoid what I think they're quite determined to do. And and while some are hoping that China will join the West's efforts in making peace, experts say it could bring about dangers. And it puts... Xi Jinping from the position of the ruthless dictator that everyone was talking about a month ago to a potential peacemaker today, um, which I think is very, very dangerous for the long term because China is the bigger threat long term to democracy. And others are concerned about whether China will take advantage of a distracted West to invade Taiwan. The democratically ruled island said today that a Chinese warship sailed through the Taiwan Strait just hours before the Biden-Xi phone call. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Democrats are trying to distance themselves from rising gas prices and are accusing oil companies of price gouging. Now, some lawmakers are rallying behind a bill that would slap an extra tax on big oil and give that money to consumers in the form of rebates. Here's NTD's Melina Wisecup with the details. With high gas prices weighing on Americans, some have looked to the Biden administration for answers. The White House has responded by accusing oil companies of taking advantage of the situation to price gouge. 
But is it that simple? Some energy analysts say there's more to the marketplace. Uh, some companies have a lot of uh, gas stations, but they're not the oil companies. And so they purchase their gasoline from a jobber or a wholesaler or a terminal operator. And that gasoline is whatever the price is that day that's determined in the marketplace. Now, it's true that prices might fall, right? A month or two, you know, two weeks or three weeks later after he bought it. But his his incentive is to try to recover his costs. And so he so that's why there tends to be a lag. Whatever the reason, the price at the pump isn't falling fast enough. And some Democrats on Capitol Hill are using the opportunity to push for their wish list of energy policy changes. Here's Senator Whitehouse promoting his new bill to tax oil companies more and dish out the profits to consumers. $90 billion in excess profit. What my bill would do is take half of that $90 billion, $45 billion, and give it back to you. The lawmakers project the tax would raise $45 billion per year, delivering single people $240 every year and couples $360 per year. But the new tax could discourage oil companies from fulfilling President Biden's request for them to produce more. All the things you want these companies to do, that's incentives begin to disappear. So why should I take on a project if I absorb all the downs, the down side risks, you know, a period of time of low oil prices, but get no, none of the benefits of the upside risks. With a similar point, Senator Lisa Murkowski, the ranking Republican on the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, says, quote, if you want to send a positive signal to producers that they might want to be doing more, the worst thing you can do is to threaten them with a windfall tax. And if this bill is brought to the floor for a vote in the Senate, it's unlikely to pass because Republicans are highly unlikely to support it. And then you have Senator Joe Manchin, who is also highly unlikely to support this. So if it is brought to the floor for a vote, it will likely just be political symbolism by Democrats trying to distance themselves away from these high gasoline prices. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Renewed calls are surfacing for an investigation into the president and his son, Hunter Biden. This is after a New York Times report confirmed the existence of Hunter's infamous laptop and claimed to authenticate the emails contained on it. Here are the details from NTD's Grace Coulter. The New York Times on Wednesday published a comprehensive report about the ongoing federal probe into Hunter Biden's tax filings. Nearly 25 paragraphs down, the Times confirmed the existence of the first president's infamous laptop and citing anonymous sources claimed to authenticate the emails contained in it. The Times also reports that the younger Biden is under scrutiny for dubious relationships with Chinese and Ukrainian energy companies, which may have violated foreign lobbying and money laundering rules. The laptop contains emails detailing how Hunter used his father's political power as leverage in overseas business dealings. It was first reported by the New York Post during the heat of the 2020 presidential election. The story was initially censored on Twitter, though the company later said this was a mistake. The story was also written off by many in the corporate media and Democratic politicians as Russian disinformation. But now that the New York Times has acknowledged the authenticity of the laptop, many are calling for an investigation, not just into Hunter, but also President Biden. Miranda Devine, New York Post columnist and the author of Laptop from Hell, appeared on Tucker Carlson Thursday night and said the evidence needs to be examined. And I think the next step is to actually look at the evidence of wrongdoing by the president uh, and his family, obviously, but he's the important one, um, that's contained in the laptop and do something about it. In a video Friday, Tom Fitton, the president of Judicial Watch, a government watchdog group, called for a special counsel. The New York Times story this week confirms the Justice Department is thinking of ways not to prosecute Hunter Biden. And of course, the other dirty little secret is Hunter Biden's scandal implicates Joe Biden directly. Others are raising concerns that the president could be compromised due to the possibility of being involved in his son's shady business dealings with China and the Ukraine. Some are also concerned about blackmail, since the laptop contains pornographic photographs of his son. 
Republican Representative Lauren Boebert wrote on Twitter, Now that the New York Times has even confirmed the Hunter Biden laptop's veracity, can we begin to admit that Joe Biden is, by definition, a compromised politician? President Biden in the past claimed the Post story about the laptop was, quote, a bunch of garbage and a Russian plant. On Thursday, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked whether the president has changed his view. I've pointed the Department of Justice and also to Hunter Biden's representatives who doesn't work in the government. When pressed on whether she stood by her assessment in October 2020 that the Post story was Russian disinformation, Psaki gave an identical answer. Grace Coulter, NTD News, New York. Republican Senator Josh Hawley is accusing Biden's pick for the Supreme Court of showing leniency towards sex offenders. He posted a lengthy Twitter thread highlighting several cases where he says Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson ordered sentences below the minimum guidelines. An expert says her judicial philosophy is concerning. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. There's a pattern here of treating sex offenders leniently. In a lengthy Twitter thread posted on Wednesday, Republican Senator Josh Hawley said he noticed an alarming pattern in which Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, favored child pornography offenders in her sentencing. Hawley went on Fox News' Hannity Thursday night and said Jackson has, quote, consistently let child sex predators off the hook. I think we just have a basic question to ask. Are we going to get a judge here who's going to protect children? or who's going to protect child predators. Press Secretary Jen Psaki responded that Hawley is taking statements from Judge Jackson's court transcripts out of context. In the vast majority of cases involving child sex crimes, the sentences Judge Jackson imposed were consistent with or above what the government or U.S. probation recommended. But Hawley said the commission won't turn over all of the judge's sentencing records. Zach Smith, a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation and a former assistant U.S. attorney, said the Senate Judiciary Committee should request those records. Well, I think it's certainly an important line of inquiry for senators to ask her about. In his Twitter post, Hawley stated, as a member of the U.S. Sentencing Commission, Judge Jackson advocated for drastic change in how the law treats sex offenders by eliminating the existing mandatory minimum sentences for child pornography. According to Smith, offenders who produce child pornography face a minimum sentence of 15 years. But possession of child pornography does not have a mandatory minimum sentence, which may be the type of cases Hawley highlighted. Yet judges must still take into account a variety of factors. The nature of the offense, other aggravating or mitigating factors surrounding the offense, and also a defendant's specific criminal history. And once all of those things are taken into consideration, a recommended guidelines range for a sentence is, is proposed to the judge. Smith noted in the cases Hawley highlighted, Judge Jackson imposed sentences well below the recommended guidelines based on the factors presented to her. He said Jackson has not clearly stated what her judicial philosophy is and that the American people should be concerned about that. Uh, if she is confirmed and is on the Supreme Court, uh, she will no longer be bound necessarily by Supreme Court precedent. She'll have a chance to reevaluate some of those precedents and decide uh, cases as she sees uh, appropriate. And so her judicial philosophy will be uh, play a much more important role. The Senate hearings begin March 21 and will go on for four days. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. The White House has a new COVID-19 response coordinator. The president made the announcement and a statement on Friday. Dr. Ashish Jha is taking over the leading role succeeding Jeff Science. The president says Dr. Jha is the right person for the job as we enter a new phase of the pandemic. But according to the president, the fight against the virus is far from done. He says we have to provide more vaccines and boosters. And Dr. Fauci says he is considering stepping down as the longtime director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He's been in that role since the Ronald Reagan era in 1984 and is now over 80 years old. And the CDC has removed tens of thousands of deaths linked to COVID-19, including nearly a quarter of the deaths of those under 18 years old. And while many health professionals are taking this as good news, they're also raising concerns about the reliability of the data. Here's more on that story. The CDC quietly removed tens of thousands of COVID-19-linked deaths from its data tracker website on March 15th. Of those removed were 416 deaths among children, 
24% of the total child death count previously listed on the CDC's website. The CDC cut an additional 71,000 virus deaths, bringing the total to just under 780,000. Kelly Cronert, a Georgia resident who runs a COVID data tracking website, documented the change in numbers. On the CDC's tracker website, the agency says data on deaths were adjusted after resolving a coding logic error. This resulted in decreased death counts across all demographic categories. The CDC relies on states and other localities to report COVID-19 deaths and acknowledges that the data is not complete. Yet the statistics are often cited by those advocating for vaccination against COVID-19, including by CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky when she pushed for an expert panel to advise the CDC to recommend the vaccine for all 5 to 11-year-olds. In an email to the Epoch Times, Cronert said, the update is an improvement, but it's at least the third correction to this data and still does not solve the issue. It just highlights that people have been using a flawed source of data when discussing kids and COVID. A number of medical professionals responded positively to the child death count being cut by almost a quarter, but raised concerns that the data is being used widely to guide and advocate for policy. Coming up, a 13-year-old driver was behind the crash that killed nine people in Texas. Authorities say two vehicles collided head-on on a highway and caught fire. And Amazon buys MGM Movie Studio for $8.5 billion. The tech giant has been hoping to draw people to its video streaming service by boosting its content. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Russia and Ukraine, the largest conflict in Europe since World War II. More than two million refugees in two weeks. Families torn apart, lives changed forever. A war with global consequences. Tune in for special coverage from our reporters on the ground. Right here on NTD News. Authorities say the driver of a fatal crash in Texas on Tuesday was a 13-year-old boy. Nine people are dead and two are critically injured. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. The National Transportation Safety Board says a 13-year-old boy was driving the pickup truck that crashed into a van on a highway in Andrews, Texas this Tuesday. The crash killed nine people, including six members of the University of the Southwest golf team and their coach. The boy and a man in the truck also died. The National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, says it was very clearly a high-speed head-on collision. Both vehicles caught on fire after the crash, and the agency is looking to download the vehicle records and to find out exactly what happened. Their initial investigation says the left front tire of the pickup truck appeared to have failed, and the truck crossed into the opposite lane. The van that it crashed into was carrying nine passengers. The NTSB says they believe a number of the passengers were not wearing seatbelts, and at least one of them was ejected from the vehicle. Seven of the passengers were killed, while the other two were carried to a hospital in critical condition. The minimum age to get a driver's permit in Texas is 15 years old. The NTSB is still investigating the case. Allison Lee, NTD News. Amazon now officially owns MGM Movie Studio. The tech giant closed its $8.5 billion deal yesterday. This means Amazon will be able to add about 4,000 movies to its library. Here are the details. Amazon on Thursday said it closed its $8.5 billion deal to buy MGM. This comes after a deadline passed for the Federal Trade Commission to challenge the deal. Amazon aims to draw people to its video streaming platform, Amazon Prime Video, and compete with rivals such as Netflix and Disney+. With this MGM acquisition, Amazon will add about 4,000 films to its library, including the iconic James Bond franchise. Um, MGM also has a deep library of about 17,000 episodes of television content, so this is a big deal. 
In a statement, Amazon said it would welcome all MGM employees to the company and work with the studio's leadership. They say there won't be any layoffs. Amazon announced the transaction in May 2021, but only cleared regulatory hurdles after nearly a year. We often find that these acquisitions are worth every penny because what they do is they ensure long-term success because content is king. And no matter the platform, consumers, they go where the content is. He says we can expect to see more of these types of acquisitions in the future. Well, I think it just shows that we're in the Wild West right now when it comes to streaming services and that so many of them are trying to differentiate themselves by having great content. It really is what movies can I watch? What TV shows do you have? How do you keep me on your platform? The Federal Trade Commission declined to comment on the deal, but notes that it may challenge a deal after it closes if it determines that it violates the law. Coming up, recently released police footage shows a man who died while resisting arrest in California. The man was later found to have drugs and alcohol in his system at the time of arrest. In Southern California, scientists unveil the fossilized jaw and teeth of what they believe to be a new species of cat. More on NTD News when we return. Footage came out this week of a man who died while resisting arrest. The man repeatedly said he couldn't breathe, similar to George Floyd. But this happened two months before the Floyd incident. Viewer discretion is strongly advised for the following graphic footage. Recently published footage shows how a man died in California Highway Patrol custody after resisting arrest in 2020. A judge in Altadena of Los Angeles County ordered the video to be released on Tuesday. CHP officers took 38-year-old Edward Bronstein into custody on March 31st, two years ago, after a traffic stop. If you resist, if you even... It's a court order. It's a court order. It's your choice. Okay. How serious is this? This is serious. Why? For officers to fucking force me to do this? Really? You can just provide it and still say you don't consent. That's fine. You're bringing the fight to this, not us. I'm not fighting it at all. I then have a seat and provide your arm. This is your last opportunity. Otherwise, you're going face down on the mat, and we're going to keep on going. According to KTLA, the family's lawyer acknowledged that Bronstein had methamphetamine, marijuana, and alcohol in his system at the time of death. The coroner's report wrote his cause of death was acute meth intoxication. Stop yelling! I can't breathe! I can't breathe! I can't breathe! I can't! Please help! I can't breathe! I'll do it willingly! I'll do it willingly! Just relax and stop resisting. Let me breathe! Let me breathe! Let me breathe! Stop moving! According to the LAS, one of Bronstein's daughters said he had a history of being deeply afraid of needles. Bronstein died two months before George Floyd in Minneapolis, who also repeatedly told officers he couldn't breathe. Is he breathing? If he's got a pulse and he's not breathing, he still needs rescue breaths. Get some air in him. The 18-minute video was published as part of a federal lawsuit. The Port of Los Angeles had the busiest February in its 115-year history. The port's executive director said the port saw a record amount of cargo, but that exports continue to struggle. Let's hear more on how the port is doing. The Port of Los Angeles reported a record-breaking number of cargo volume for the month of February. Overall volumes of more than 857,000 20-foot equivalent units represent the best February in the port's 115 years.
In fact, it eclipsed last year's all-time mark by 7.3%. Growth continues to be driven by imports and empty container repositioning. Soroka said that despite current rising prices, increasing amounts of imports are expected through spring. Exports, however, continue to suffer. Showing more than 5.5% year-on-year decline. If you're keeping score like me, exports have now dropped 36 of the last 40 months at the Port of Los Angeles. Vessel backlogs have eased compared to January, but ships are still waiting in long queue lines at the nation's busiest port. Today, there are 44 ships in the queue on their way to the San Pedro Bay ports. That's down 60% from a high of 109 vessels just back in January. The improvement is a combined result of the projected lull after Lunar New Year in Asia and increased fluidity on our container terminals. In the weeks ahead, we expect to see an increase in vessels headed our way as retailers begin a big push to replenish shelves. Soroka said the year is off to a good start overall, but it will be difficult to match the record-breaking 2021 numbers. Southern California scientists have found the fossil of a new species of predator cats. Let's take a look at what exactly those scientists uncovered. The San Diego Natural History Museum unveiled on Tuesday the fossilized jaw and teeth from a new cat species. The fossils were found in San Diego County. Scientists believe the saber-toothed animal lived over 4 million years ago. Based on the jaw size, scientists think the predator was about the size of a bobcat. They would have been up to 4 feet long from head to tail tip and stood at about 2 feet at the shoulders. These prehistoric cats may have been one of the first species to have an exclusively meat-based diet. They say the new kind of hunter was part of a mysterious group of animals that are now completely extinct. But researchers believe the predator's traits still live on in true cats that are hyper-carnivores, including some house cats. Coming up, Europe's space agency says it will not be sending its first rover to Mars this year, as sanctions on Russia now make this impossible. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Ninety percent of news outlets in the United States are controlled by six corporations. They're not out to tell you the truth of what's happening. They're out to tell you the picture of the world that they represent. The mission of the Epic Times is to chase the truth, to ground all statements and facts, and prevent people from being misled. This is a battle, a battle between truth and deceit. Subscribe today and join the Americans who are seeking truth and tradition. We'd love to have you on board. Lockdown deja vu in China. Factories are halting production, cities are turning into ghost towns, and a massive makeshift hospital is under con construction. That's as China battles its worst COVID-19 outbreak in two years. NTD's China in Focus host Tiffany Meyer has more. If you're buying something online that was made in China, it's likely it was produced in Shenzhen, China's fifth most populous city. But now Shenzhen is under lockdown. Authorities pushed the stay-at-home order Sunday due to a virus surge. What's life like there? We get a glimpse of it from a Sinjin resident, who we gave a pseudonym to protect his identity. We are all locked down inside the building. We're not allowed to go outside. Since Monday, Jack has been unable to leave his home. This after a building in his neighborhood reported two infections. Two people were diagnosed with COVID-19. And anybody who lives in the same floor, they were asked to leave for the isolation center last night. He says there are at least 24 units in the now empty building, as all residents have been put into isolation. And residents of his building are forbidden from leaving their apartment units. I'm, I'm a little bit worried because even if I am a healthy person, uh, but... If I am considered to be a close contactor with anybody who is diagnosed with COVID-19, I'll be asked 
to 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 uh, to go to the isolation center, leave my home, and actually I keep pets at home. If I'm asked to leave my home for 14 days, I don't know what to do with my pets. Another building in Luohu District was sealed off after just one infection was reported in a nearby building. Every day, health workers test all residents for the virus in their homes. While stuck inside, they're only allowed to order food via no-contact delivery. But in the Bao'an District, some residents claim no-contact food delivery is no longer available. In some videos shared online, workers tasked with delivering food supplies in Shenzhen were seen sleeping on the street outside the sealed-off buildings. A makeshift hospital is under construction in the snowy northern Chinese city Jiling. Filled with 6,000 beds, the facility is expected to open early next week. According to China's state-run broadcaster CCTV, that's when the first phase of construction is scheduled to be finished. The new facility comes as the city battles a recent surge of COVID-19 cases. Chinese officials warn that controlling virus spread is becoming increasingly difficult since more than two dozen regions have reported infections recently. Drone footage from Thursday captured another building project, an isolation facility in Hong Kong beside the Kaitech cruise terminal. According to the city's government, the facility will have 1,000 beds. Infections have skyrocketed in the city, overwhelming local healthcare clinics and hospitals. Local authorities have deployed construction workers and building materials from mainland China to speed up the new building's construction. Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam said on Thursday she would review COVID-19 restrictions in the coming days. That includes social distancing measures, border restriction updates and a mass testing proposal. And while China continues to struggle with the pandemic, the UK ends all COVID-19 travel measures. The move is welcomed by the tourism industry, which had a difficult time the last couple of years. Heathrow Airport's passenger numbers in February were still 50% down compared to pre-pandemic levels, but they're bracing for a busy summer. NTD's Jane Werrell has the latest on the travel restrictions. I'm here in Heathrow, London's largest airport, and since 4am this morning, all COVID travel restrictions have been scrapped. So that means that passenger locator forms are no longer needed for people coming into the UK. And for those who haven't been vaccinated, there's now no longer a need for pre-departure tests. That restriction has already been lifted for people who have been vaccinated. This is almost two years since the government advised against non-essential international travel. Here in Heathrow, they've decided to also drop mask mandates inside the airport, and British Airways and Virgin Airways have also done the same. Um, that's only for destinations where there's also no mask mandate. It's a relief for frequent flyers like Jeff Heesman, who works as a trainer in law and insurance. Before the pandemic, he was taking about 150 flights a year. Unfortunately, I'd been delivering uh, training online for, for a number of years before, but particularly in Europe, it wasn't as popular as in other parts of the world. So if I'm honest, it was draining spending seven to eight hours a day online. So now it's great to have human interaction. Again, of course, it's a very different dynamic. Um, it's much easier to train um, people face to face. Um, so I'm just glad to be back in the real world, really. Great. And, and where are you heading to today? Uh, so today I'm heading to Lisbon and then driving back to home in northwest Spain. With hotels in the area no longer quarantine venues, but instead open for visitors, there's hope business will improve. But there are uncertainties, particularly for taxi drivers, who have the added concern of fuel costs, but don't want to put prices up for the consumer. Obviously, we can't pass on to our customers. It's a tough competition as it is where I work with Uber. And yeah, the prices shot up. They've got, they've got, I think the numbers going in control over that issue over there. The fuel prices keep going up and up. They're touching 180 plus. While reported COVID cases are rising in all four UK nations, they're well below the peaks recorded during previous waves. The government says that it has put a range of contingency measures in place. And it's also worth noting that the lifting of these restrictions applies to the whole of the UK. The government says that it's deliberately timed before Easter and it's a move that's been welcomed by the travel industry. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. The European Union has placed sanctions on Russia, hoping to force Putin to pull back from invading Ukraine. 
but it's unclear what outcome the sanctions will have for Russia and how it will impact the Russian people. NTD France correspondent David Vives meets a policy analyst to get his views. Following up on the informal meeting of the EU heads of state and government last week, the Council of Europe implemented a new round of economic sanctions on Russia this week. This includes the prohibitions of transactions with certain state-owned enterprises and also prohibits new investments in the Russian energy sector. The objectives of these sanctions, according to EU Commissioner Ursula von der Leyen, is to isolate Russia and, quote, drain the resources it uses to finance this barbaric war. But what are the desired effects? One is that Russian troops withdraw from Ukraine. According to policy analyst Alexandre Delval, another would be the dismissal of Russian President Vladimir Putin in Russia. The West is clearly counting on a regime change. In my opinion, this seems a bit risky, because those who know Russian internal politics know that those who could replace Putin are not the liberals, they are the Stalinists. Those who today have the best scores in the polls are the Stalinists. The new EU sanctions add to those already issued after the invasion of Ukraine. Many key Russian banks are cut off from the banking system. Some European companies are leaving the country to dissociate themselves from Putin's government, and roughly 400 Russian elites lost billions over asset freezes by Western countries. According to Delval, the EU sanctions are the heaviest measures taken since the Cold War. But Delval says neutral countries can help Russia. The trader of a large company told me that he was already signing coal contracts with Turkey to buy Russian gas and oil. But the Turks claimed that it was oil from elsewhere. Russia is a large country with many partners, some of whom have remained neutral, and this provides an outlet for Russia. And the Russian gas and oil use the same pipelines as other countries like Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan. As for the effectiveness of the sanctions, Delval says there are little if no example at all in history where they forced a regime change. But the sanctions will impact people, be it the people in Europe who will pay a higher price for energy, or the Russian people themselves. I can't think of an example where sanctions have worked. Usually it's the people who suffer their effects. He gave the example of the Iraq war when Saddam Hussein was targeted with sanctions. It took a second war of regime change because the 13 years of sanction has served no purpose except to kill thousands of Iraqi children deprived of basic necessities. The embargo was inhumane, as is often the case, and the Americans had to come back to change the regime. Moreover, sanctions can cause resentment among the population towards the foreign countries that place the sanction. Sanctions will eventually be borne by the innocent population, good people. But it will be used by the regime who will tell the people, the West humiliates us and targets us. Children are dying because of these sanctions. So this reinforces the regime's narrative. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Europe will no longer attempt to send its first rover to Mars this year. The European Space Agency says it is indefinitely suspending the mission due to the war in Ukraine. Here are the details. The European Space Agency, or ESA, said Thursday that it is practically and politically impossible to launch ExoMars in September due to the war in Ukraine. The agency partnered with Russia's state-owned space agency, Roscosmos, on this mission, but decided to suspend the partnership this week. The lander is the element where Russian technology uh, is uh, involved and is, uh, is necessary uh, in today's setup. Uh, so what we need to do is really look into these options. Uh, this is what I mentioned before. Uh, we are, uh, have been asked to launch uh, technical studies now to see what are the options uh, and uh, exactly as you ask uh, um, uh, the options in terms of European alone or Europe uh, with other partners. The project started in 2005. ESA now says the launch probably won't happen until around 2026. Meanwhile, Russian cosmonauts comment on the prospects of a Russian space station. Indeed, construction of the Russian orbital space station called Ross is being discussed, but it is still in the under-discussion stage. As for the cosmonaut corps, our main task is to fly to space. We want to have as many flights as possible, as diverse as possible. The Russian cosmonaut is part of the new crew set up to go to the International Space Station on Friday. U.S.-Russian cooperation aboard the International Space Station remains free of tension despite the war in Ukraine.
Still to come, luxury car maker Porsche is going greener. It's planning a hybrid version of one of its iconic sports cars. That and more coming up on NTD News. Luxury car maker Porsche is announcing more electric vehicles in the coming years. It's also planning a hybrid version of its most famous sports car. NTD's Phil Zoe has more from Hell's Kitchen, New York. Porsche is planning to roll out a hybrid version of its iconic 911 sports car. It's also expecting over half of its sales to be all electric cars by 2025. The company's first electric car, the Porsche Taycan, outsold the iconic 911. The Taycan is popular because it's new and it's hard to get. I spoke to Lauren Fix, also known as the car coach. She owns four Porsche cars herself. Right now, with a lot of the components coming out of the Ukraine and Russia, you're going to see a shortage of these vehicles, which means dealers are charging a premium if you can find any of them. The company is planning two more electric vehicles, including the Macan SUV, along with the 718 sports car in the next couple of years. The company's sales increased by around 650% last year to $37 billion. Porsche reported a record $6 billion in operating profit last year, which is up 27% from the year before. Phil Zhou, NTD News, New York. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.